according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to the Gospel of Matthew this morning. We are headed for Matthew 5, 6, and 7, but before we deal with those chapters, we should at least scan through briefly chapters 1 through 4 so that the Sermon on the Mount is placed in its proper uh, context. Tremendous passage, one of my favorites in all the scriptures, um, misapplied by many. And uh, we'll take some time this morning to uh, hopefully sort things out so that before we even begin with any of it, we'll have uh, a solid standing on which to go. There it is. Just never got copied from the PC back in the office to, uh, to this computer right here. Well, give me one moment. There it is. You're right, I have too many of these on the desktop. All right, we will send to create a shortcut. And voila, Sermon on the Mount. Right. Let's start with prayer, sanctifying our thinking, dedicating our time to His glory, shall we pray? Father, it is a grace blessing for us to be here this morning. We thank you for this opportunity and for this privilege. We ask for your hand of guidance upon our thoughts, that you would open the eyes of our understanding, give us ears to hear and a heart to understand. We thank you. We praise you for this powerful message. We pray that we might apply it correctly and understand the context in which it was given, the primary application which it has, but also, Father, the secondary application by which we understand that which pleases you in, in every age. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Sermon on the Mount of episode number 17 in the Galilean ministry portion of our Through the Bible series. Contained primarily in three chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. There is also a good uh, 30 verses in the Gospel of Luke that pertains to this message. But the bulk of our study will be in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I think primarily that is the, the basic text to use. And then you supplement that with other material from the Gospel of Luke. I'll have more to say about it as far as its particular setting is concerned. I think it's pretty clear that this was a, uh, a momentous occasion in the life of Christ, probably the longest message he's delivered up to this point of time. And, uh, and it, it really is a remarkable insight into how long people would actually sit down and listen to a single message, for example, because the body of doctrine contained in those three chapters is absolutely unbelievable. No wonder the audience was stunned that here was someone teaching with authority and unlike one of their scribes. So we'll, uh, we'll have a lot to say about that, but I think before we do any of that, let's go ahead and put it in its context here in the Gospel of Matthew, and that's perhaps the best place to start. If you do have a harmony of the Gospels, some of you have already, or at least one person has already commented that Matthew seems to skip around a lot. Well, that's, that's a neat way of putting that, and it's, it's a pretty accurate way to put that. If you're just scanning down that Matthew column in your harmony, you'll, you'll realize that it did pretty good in chapters 1 through 4, 
But then once we got to the Galilean ministry, we began to jump to chapter 8, back to chapter 4, back to an earlier part of chapter 8, to uh, chapter 9, and then all the way ahead to chapter 12. And to this point, you've been wondering, when are we going to get 5, 6, and 7? When are we going to get 10 and 11? Why, uh, why was it that the material in, in uh, chapter 8 was was uh, front-loaded? Why wasn't the material in chapter 12 was front-loaded? Why did that material come in front of um, here, for example, Matthew 5, 6, and 7? Another way to put it is, why was Matthew 5, 6, and 7 put off so long? Okay, There's different ways you can look at it. Uh, I think the best way to consider, and we'll see that this morning, is that Matthew being the gospel of the kingdom, Matthew being the gospel of discourse, the uh, emphasis that was laid upon the tax collector's heart as he composed this this uh, gospel message was that to communicate the content of the message, not to present a, a chronological sequence of events. That's the Luke approach. That is definitely the Luke approach. In fact, Luke even says that in his preamble, that he was not an eyewitness, that he was a historian who was interviewing those who were eyewitnesses, and he was doing what he could to take all the different accounts and to put them into a chronology that would be, uh, that would be acceptable. So uh, that's why if you scan down the Luke column, you'll find that the Luke column is, is very sequential because Luke was, uh, among other things, a historian of, of uh, I think Ramsey called him a historian of the first rank. That is, of all the historians of the ancient world, from Herodotus to anyone, any other historian you'd care to name, Tacitus and so forth, Luke was second to none of them as far as his diligence with the details. So just scanning in the harmony, you'll see that, and we'll get a little bit more of a glimpse on that today, that Matthew's burden was to communicate the, the main discourses such as the Sermon on the Mount, such as the Mount Olivet Discourse. I'll give you all five of them here shortly. So before we do that, though, let's uh, remind ourselves how Jewish the uh, Gospel of Matthew really is. Arnold Fruchtenbaum spoke of this because he was not really exposed to the Christian Bible uh, for quite some time. Growing up Jewish, he had his Bible, which we today call the Old Testament, and uh, his first exposure to the New Testament, he turned to Matthew and he read the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And first thing he thought was, that, that, how Jewish can you get? That's pretty much as Jewish as you could imagine, just that opening statement right there. But let's recognize that Matthew's gospel is Jewish, that his primary target is a Jewish audience with expectations of the king. And we see that here. Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So aspects of the Christ, Messiah, aspects of the king, son of David, and then the application to the Jews, son of Abraham, really spell out here, just with verse 1, the, uh, the impact that Matthew has. Now, even that genealogy that you have there is broken down from Abraham to David, David to the captivity, the captivity to the Christ, and breaks it down into three equal portions of 14 names. Um, on into chapter 2, the Magi arrive and they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And so we again, we're carrying the king theme throughout these uh, early chapters. That's what I'm trying to highlight this morning before we get to chapter 5, that the dominant theme in Matthew is the kingdom. Starting with the genealogy of the king, now with the uh, worship of the king, the Magi come, the jealousy of the, of the usurping king, that is Herod and his jealousy and fear and so forth. 
We then uh, go into chapter 3, and we find uh, John the Baptist saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Hopefully, you and I can divorce ourselves from our present perspective of knowing that we are 2,000 years down the road. That we, are, we have this church, this intercalation st- uh, stewardship dispensation that comes in between First Advent and Second Advent. If we cannot separate that from our thinking, then we are going to stumble like anything in the Sermon on the Mount. We have got to, to understand the context in which the Sermon on the Mount is given. We have to embrace the reality that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because there is, there is no clue, there's no trace of the church, the coming church, or the 2,000-year time gap. As far as the prophetic calendar is concerned, week 69 is about to close, and week 70 can begin, see, of Daniel's 70 weeks there in Daniel chapter 9. So, when the Baptist says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's not lying. And he's not inaccurate. He is accurate so far as the revelation is concerned up to his point. It's not his fault that the church is a mystery. All right? It is at hand. And we have to recognize that. The Sermon on the Mount must be considered in the kingdom of heaven at hand atmosphere. And you will notice, this is the one referred to. I'm reading from Matthew 3.3. 3. This is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now, John the Baptist was the first Advent forerunner, but there is a coming second Advent forerunner. Keep that in mind, because preparing the way for the coming Christ is a function of the second Advent forerunner, that is, Elijah, returned to earth. And uh, these messages that apply to the first Advent are equally as applicable to the second Advent. And that is what will lead us into the Sermon on the Mount. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, this is Matthew 3, 7, coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Interestingly enough, these warnings are for the regenerate. They are not for the brood of vipers. They are for the sons of God, to those who have believed in Jesus Christ, to those who have life in his name. Uh, and so when it says, therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, what, uh, what underlies that, of course, is the prerequisite of repentance, of actually being born again, and then you can begin to bear the fruit. Notice as John brings his message to a close in verses 10 through 12, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. That's how imminent the kingdom is. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Just keep that thought in your mind today and next week and however long it takes us to go through the, the Sermon on the Mount uh, because fruit bearing is going to be a uh, message that Jesus delivers in the Sermon on the Mount to include good trees and bad trees and good fruit and bad fruit and the issues there. Well, that's nothing different than what the Baptist was saying when he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand and the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Uh, verse 12, his winnowing fork, with reference to the Christ. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Is that a first advent verse or a second advent verse? Second advent. Yeah, Jesus didn't do any of that in first advent. This is all second advent in primary application there. So, But nevertheless, John the Baptist says the winnowing fork is in his hand. Like the axe is already at the root of the tree, ready to chop it down. That's the imminent concept of 
the second advent of Jesus Christ, the imminent aspect of the kingdom is probably the better way to say that. Um, we can relate to first advent, second advent, because we're in between them. But from the standpoint of where John is, they don't have a clue that there's two different advents. See, they are looking to the coming and they're viewing, here he is, see. And because he's arrived, because the forerunner is here, then the king is here, the kingdom is at hand, okay? They don't know anything about the rejection. They don't know anything about the, the church. They don't know anything about the, the time frame in between first and second advent. John's the forerunner. The king is here. The kingdom is at hand, okay? We have to come to grips with that. Now, Jesus arrived from Galilee the Jordan, to be baptized, and uh, the issues that happen here at the end of chapter 3, the Father gives a, a uh, testimony, the heavens open. Three times the Father will testify concerning his Son. Chapter 4, in the temptations now, the kingdom aspect continues because the God of this age is going to try to offer the earthly kingdom to Jesus Christ, starting in verse 8. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdom of the world, kingdoms, plural, of the world, and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. So this theme of kingdom, kingdom, kingdom is continuing on even through the point of chapter 4 in the temptation itself. All right. And, of course, the, the temptation there, the snare, was that Jesus and his humanity could dream about another way to get to the crown without going to the cross. See, there must be another path. There must be another way. Why, why would you be so close-minded as to assume that there's only one way, right? Isn't that the lie we encounter today on a daily basis, that there's many paths, there's many ways, and you can't say that your way is the right way and everybody else is wrong and going to hell? Well, why can't I? Truth is always exclusive. Reality is always what it is, and everything else is, is a lie. And so here's the temptation that the, the devil puts forward and says, you know, there's another way. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to suffer. Worship me, and these kingdoms can be yours. And that's the, actually, that's the, the essence of all satanic evil, is that there's always another way. When, when he came up with his five I wills, that was the first declaration of, hey, there's another way. We don't have to do it God's way. There can be many ways. All right. So from the five I wills onward, satanic rebellion is always reflected in the lie that there are many paths, many ways. And it's not just the narrow minded one way. Well, guess what? It is the one way, because that's the way of perfection. The father designed the perfect plan for the maximum glory of Jesus Christ. And that's what he's bringing about. Now, as it goes on here, after the temptation, um, Still now, the Lord is ministering, and as he begins his Galilean ministry, verse 12, Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody. He withdrew into Galilee, and that, that follows the, the broad pattern, but not in, in the full detail of Luke. You know, there's the baptism and then the Galilean ministry. And, but then notice, from that time, Jesus, in verse 17, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right, so it's not just the baptizer with this message. Jesus Christ himself preached this message, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was an, it was an integral part of his ministry. Now, then he calls the disciples, tells them to be fishers of men, and then large crowds are gathering, he's healing sickness and all these other things. So that is the context for the Sermon on the Mount. All right, that is the context for the Sermon on the Mount. Kingdom Every chapter throughout, and Jesus himself saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
brings us, and now large crowds are gathering. And when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Sermon on the Mount is a pass, is a Bible class, is a series of messages in one long discourse. I'm assuming that they stopped occasionally for coffee and donuts. All right? I'm assuming that there are so many parts to this sermon that there were possibly intermissions. <laughs> there were possibly bathroom breaks. I don't know. Okay? Now, we can, we can sit here, we can read word for word, Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7, and it, it's a matter of minutes, all right? I don't assume that the Lord taught it in as short a time as we can read it if we read it straight through. It never works that way, <laughs> all right? I've yet to meet a Bible teacher that would just word for word read his entire notes and not stop and make comment or application or illustrate or, you know, that kind of thing. I'm sure the Lord did the same thing, but... This message in these three chapters, I would encourage you to read these three chapters uh, several times over and over in the, in the upcoming week or weeks. Uh, the content of this is so thorough that I would expect that they did take breaks, that they did stop. They would uh, have periods of time when they could reflect upon that which was taught. They had time to, to, uh, to uh, do various things that people do during intermissions. All right. But we, we notice in verse 3 with the very first of the Beatitudes that the application is the kingdom, specifically the kingdom of heaven. Now that perks up some ears because all of these Jews are wrapped up in the Davidic kingdom. That is, they're all totally oriented to the fact that a son of David is going to come and he's going to whoop up on the Romans because they've read the book of Daniel. They know that it's Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. They know that that the, the mountain fashion without hands is going to come and he's going to smash those feet, the, the, the feet and the toes of, of clay and iron. And so they're ready for this to happen. They've seen Babylon. They've seen Persia. They've seen Greece. They've seen Rome. All right? They have yet to see actually the, the split legs of, of, of iron and they've yet to see the feet of iron and clay. But that's okay. We, we know that now from our perspective. They still are looking at four kingdoms. They're seeing the fourth. They're under the thumb of the fourth right now. And so when the forerunner arises and when the Christ appears and when all these things seem to be fulfilled, you bet there's some excitement, but there's some excitement about a Davidic throne. Not the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of David, the kingdom of Israel, to have dominance over the nations. What are you talking about heaven? <laughs> are they heavenly minded? No, they're earthly minded. And so there's going to be a, a dichotomy in the reaction. Those that are spiritually minded, that is, those that are positive, on positive volition to truth, that are humble to the message, they're going to respond in an amazing way. But those that are carnally minded, that are living in this world, for this world, ready to go kick some Roman, uh, you know, rear ends or whatever, they are going to be very disappointed by this message. It's going to be talking about the meek and peacemakers and uh, what is that? See... So, um, you know, merciful. We don't want to be merciful. It's payback time. We want to conquer. We want to rule. We want to be ruthless. See, which is the carnal mindset that actually began their kingdom when they said we want to have a king like all the other nations. 
right? They want to operate like the Gentiles do. So this, uh, this message is extraordinary. All right, the outline now. The outline. Point one. Chapters five through seven form the first lengthy discourse in Matthew. The Sermon on the Mount. Matthew, more than Mark, Luke, or John, Matthew records the narrative of more of the Lord's messages. He sometimes he's called the gospel of discourse when he's not called the gospel of the kingdom because all these discourses are recorded in the gospel of Matthew. There are five of them, and I'll outline them for you. Chapters 5 through 7 form the first lengthy discourse in Matthew. The Sermon on the Mount is the first. By the way, if, if some of these points start to sound familiar, there are 18 of them all together. And if some of them start to sound familiar, it's because you've probably seen them before in our Through the Bible series from three years ago, four years ago now. All right. The material is in the Through the Bible notebook for Matthew 5, Matthew 6 and Matthew 7. I effectively adapted for this study and then made some additional comments and added, fleshed it out a little bit with some more detail. Because clearly in, in the through the Bible series, we did not plunge into detail. We were busy giving 48 chapters a week to get through 1,189 chapters in a year. Well, so the, the points of study may be similar to what you've seen before, but then, of course, the additional detail and comment will be more thorough than uh, than what you've had in the past. So this is my disclaimer to acknowledge the uh, the very clear and blatant plagiarism. But since it's plagiarism of myself, I don't have any guilt whatsoever. <laughs> so far as that goes. All right. That's, is that auto-plagiarism, I guess? Autobiography? Auto-something? Anyway, self-plagiarism. That's fine. I've actually known... Well, I better not say... <laughs> There are people, though, that write under different pen names. And then they can quote themselves anonymously by quoting one of their pen names and not admitting to the fact that they're really citing themselves. You know, that's kind of fuzzy. I mean, that's ethically, that's, I don't know. I don't have any pen names that I know of anyway. All right. What are these five eight? Well, the first one is the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7. Chapter 5, 1 through 7.29. And if you just glance with me at 7.29 or 8.1, at how chapter 7 ends or how chapter 8 begins. There is a summary statement that ends the discourse. And it begins with, uh, in Matthew 5, it begins... He went up on the mountain. Okay. And chapter 8, when Jesus came down from the mountain. Okay. So there is in the text a statement that, that concludes the discourse. That ties it together for us as a package to where we understand chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7 is the same ministry, the same message. Whether given all at one hour, one setting, one day. In however many sessions it was, it was one complete package. And you have that statement there in chapter 8 and verse 1. Uh, likewise, I think 
you have the emphasis on these words. Notice chapter 7, verse 28. When Jesus had finished these words, the emphasis being finished. Not that different from when he was on the cross, by the way, when he said it is finished. All right. When Jesus had finished these words. Okay, so we've tied together chapters five, six and seven. The second great discourse are the is a passage that deals with the mission of the disciples, the mission of the disciples. Beginning in Matthew, chapter nine, verse thirty five. And then going down through the end of chapter 10, chapter 10 and verse 42. And you'll again find the passages that will form the brackets um, beginning in, in chapter 35. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. Are we proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom? Is that a church age message? Not exactly. Not exactly. There's a way you could think of it as such, but you and I would have to approach of it as the kingdom of heaven. That is, Jesus Christ is seated at the Father's right hand. The kingdom is now delayed. The kingdom has not yet appeared upon the earth. So we can proclaim the kingdom from the standpoint of as, as the bride, but not in the same way that to a Jewish audience they are anticipating the kingdom of God on earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, that's Jewish in its approach. All right, and then uh, here at the end of chapter 9, he has compassion. They're like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. We often throw that into a church age application for an evangelism or missions concept, but ultimately it's with relationship to the coming kingdom and the desire of the Christ to see Israel converted and, and receive their king. So Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and then he and this is where the Dodecapostolog appears in the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus is sending that sending them out two by two to minister. And verse five, these 12, Jesus sent out after instructing them. So now some people will actually outline the this discourse beginning in Matthew 10 and verse five. I prefer to back it up to chapter nine and verse 35 so that we get the background for why Jesus was sending them out. Okay, so if you find a Bible dictionary somewhere or some kind of reference that uh, refers to this discourse as beginning in Matthew 10:5, you know that's fine. I don't, I won't split hairs with it, but I prefer to back it up to chapter 9 and verse 35. Now he sends them out after instructing them, and he gives them the instructions, and we'll deal with that. And it's uh, there's some interesting teaching in there, but. When it comes to an end, in chapter 10 and verse 42, you then will notice in chapter 11, verse 1, it says, when Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples. Okay, Again, we had that statement of finish. Okay? This was his discourse. And Matthew gives us the discourse. And then he says, it was finished. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples. Then he went on. Okay, the third is the parables of the kingdom from Matthew 13. Parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13. <laughs> Probably second to Sermon on the Mount for confusion. All right, are the parables of the kingdom. So if we get a good handle in these uh, lessons on the um, Sermon on the Mount, then uh, the parables of the kingdom should come much easier for us. Okay. Matthew 13, the whole chapter, verses 1 through 53 uh, almost the whole chapter. The chapter has 58 verses. 
that day, emphasis on a single day that all this teaching came out. Jesus went out of the house, was sitting by the sea, and large crowds gathered to him. So he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, and it goes on, beginning with a parable of the sower. All of these parables, all throughout the chapter, and then the statement in verse uh, 53, when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. So we bracket the third great discourse passage with the same phraseology. Matthew makes it easy for us. He's kind of formulaic in his, in his writing style, and I, I appreciate that. Some people would look at that and be turned off by this. Oh, you're too predictable. You're too formulaic. Well, yeah, I like it. All right. I, I think it's methodical consistency. All right. The fourth one, the parables of discipleship in chapter 18. Parables of discipleship. Matthew chapter 18. Here's where they're all arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Definitely uh, challenged, uh, humility challenged, as it were. Hard time with uh, grace orientation, humility orientation, and all the rest. Uh, It's the content of chapter 18, the entire chapter, which closes in verse 35. The statement comes in chapter 19 and verse 1. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. So Matthew, again, is very kind in letting us know when this discourse is uh, is brought to a close. See, I don't, I don't think Matthew knew that someday these would all be red letter editions. <laughs> so he went ahead and wrote in here when Jesus had finished these words. OK, then uh, E. Mount Olivet discourse, the final one. Uh, really serving as a wonderful bookend, so to speak, with the because the longest ones are the Sermon on the Mount and the Mount Olivet Discourse, and they really do serve to complement one another nicely. Matthew chapter 24 and 25, two chapters, two lengthy chapters. Chapter 24 has 51 verses, and chapter 25 with 46 verses. Coming as a response to questions... Jesus came out of the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. Believers often get sidetracked by architecture (laughs) and building programs. And look at this great facility. Don't get confused with a church building and think that that's the real issue. People get all excited because of a building program or big fancy cathedral or some kind of place. All right. Anyway, there is, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And that's the uh, three questions there that are then answered in Matthew 24 and 25, as well as a chapter in Luke that you have to go into as well to relate it to these chapters. And don't be confused because... There's a section in here that talks about one will be taken and one will be left and so forth. People read the rapture into that. Even though the rapture is a mystery like the church is a mystery. This has a second advent application, not a church age application. But that goes through chapter 24 and 25. What do we read in chapter 26 and verse 1? When Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples and you know, after the two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is going to be handed over for crucifixion. All right, so he's real close 
to the cross at this point. So here's the Gospel of Matthew. And this is what we have to look forward to in the Gospel of Matthew. Five tremendous discourse messages that Matthew records in narrative form. And uh, not surprising, uh, when you think about the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Matthew was the only one present for these five discourses. Mark and Luke were not eyewitnesses. They were not disciples. All right. And uh, uh, part of the, the blessing of uh, the unique nature of the Gospel of Matthew is that these messages are here. All right. So that's all under point one. Chapters five through seven form the first lengthy discourse in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. Now, who was he teaching in the Sermon on the Mount? Point two. Jesus primarily taught his disciples, but the crowds were also in audience. Jesus primarily taught his disciples, but the crowds were also in audience. We have it from verse 1. We also have the reaction at the end of chapter 7 on the part of the crowds, on the part of the multitudes. When Jesus saw the crowds, I'll give you vocabulary for this here in a moment, but crowds, plural. Think about it. How many people does it take to make a crowd? Are we a crowd this morning? You know, does, does a dozen human beings, does that make a crowd? Well, if, uh, if we were all in the tape room, I'd say it was a crowd. <laughs> all right? It's a little bit less of a crowd in this room. In the Alamo Dome, it wouldn't be a crowd at all. It would be just a smattering. It'd be a, you know, thing, it, it all depends on the setting, doesn't it? What, what does it take to make a crowd? Well, what's the capacity of the area you're dealing with? And then, what does it take to make two crowds? Because we have here the plural of crowd. We have crowds, plural. It's not just a crowd. When Jesus saw a crowd, it's when Jesus saw the crowds, plural. So how many people is that? All right. In fact, big news here a couple weeks ago with... uh, Massive uh, abortion protest and rally and different marches that were in San Francisco. Did you see any of that in the news? And it was a big peaceful march for life. And and then there was the big, less than peaceful, violent, hideous attack against that. And uh, so there were crowds, plural. (laughs) Two very distinct crowds. There was the crowd that was marching in with one set of signs and message and then there was the crowd that was marching with an entirely different set of signs and messages and uh, and even that second crowd was really itself made up of several uh constituent mobs within that larger crowd see and it was interesting because they marched side by side with a line of of uh motorcycle police motorcycles in between them as they were proceeding on down the down the way there all right and the I think had the police officers not been there to keep distance between those crowds, I think it would have been rather violent rather quickly um, as far as that goes. Anyway, um, that just was in the news over the last couple of weeks and different accounts of it and different reactions to the, to the whole proceedings. Um, but that's kind of as a picture of what we have here because there are multiple crowds, including true disciples, 
those that are not only regenerate, but they are hungry for teaching. And that makes a difference. Not every believer is a disciple. But these are disciples. That is, they are learners. They are students. And like I say, we'll have vocabulary here in a moment. But then there are also, what other crowds can we anticipate are here? There's the critics. <laughs> the Pharisees that have been spying on him, watching what he eats, what he drinks, who he meets with, what kind of house he goes into, and all that. As we've already been breaking down in the, in the chronology of the, of the uh, harmony of the Gospels, there are Gentile crowds present. More and more so. We've also observed some demonic activity. Do you think they... Uh, do you think they hang out to listen to what some of these messages are all about? Of course they do. So we have plural crowds also in audience. Um, there's your vocabulary for disciple and, and multitudes. Under subpoint A and subpoint B. Subpoint A is a mathetes. M-A-T-H-E-T-E-S. Mathetes. And if you're not really into Greek and you kind of hate it when the pastor puts Greek up there and you just kind of go to sleep, you know, at least get... A dozen basic Greek words down. And this would be one of them. Methetes. Because this is what we're called to be. We're not just called to be saved. We're called to be disciples. Methetes. Or methetes. If you accent the final syllable there. Methetes. From 3101. That's a noun. The verb is montana, which means to learn. And we're expected to be learners. And this goes for our entire lives. Say, a lot of folks get the idea that if you just get through school, then you're done learning, right? As soon as you get your diploma, then it's over. You're done learning, see? But we're never really done learning in any career pursuit, in any field, in any uh, walk of life. There's always additional things to learn, additional skills to pick up. And ultimately, the person who's finished learning years ago is going to have trouble in the workplace, because they're not picking up on the latest skills, the latest information, the latest knowledge imaginable. You know, some of those doctors out there are pretty old, aren't they? Can you imagine if they were simply today practicing medicine based upon what they learned back in medical school? Whenever that was. I hope they've uh, been updated a little bit along the way, and that's exactly the nature of it. Okay? So as born-again believers, we are lifelong learners, continuously studying, because we can never declare that, well, I've arrived, now I know it all. None of us are there. There's always more to learn. So that's the aspect of a learner, and it is stressed in really all the Gospels. will highlight the nature of discipleship. will will highlight the, the price that a disciple must pay. That discourse on discipleship spells it out more thoroughly than anything else. But as Matthew comes to a close in the Great Commission, we realize that the impact is not on evangelism, it's on disciple-making. Matthew 28 and verse 19, Go therefore and... It doesn't say witness. It doesn't say give the gospel. It says go therefore and make disciples. So if... Your target is an unbeliever, then yeah, evangelism is going to be the first step. But if your target is a believer, then the process to make disciples is you've got to get them to abide in the word of God. If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, John chapter 8 says. So the Great Commission is not an evangelism imperative. It is a make disciple imperative. And uh, I think the sooner we understand that, the better 
we're going to be. I, th- I think we all can have a prayer burden for the lost, right? Don't we have, we have green cards? We've had these green cards ever since Pastor Hugh Crowder was here and gave us that, that evangelism uh, Bible conference, the True Evangelism Bible Conference. And he gave us these green cards, and we put the names on those green cards of people we want to undertake an intercessory prayer ministry for. And he explained to us it's not just the unregenerate that should be on those green cards. Yes, we want to pray for the unregenerate, the, the lost, the condemned, those that are on the road to hell. Absolutely. But we also want to pray for the redeemed non-disciples. Those who have eternal life, but they're not walking in the word. Because they're not disciples either. And our commission is to make disciples. And so they should also be on our green cards. Then the vocabulary for crowd, the singular is oklos, O-C-H-L-O-S, oklos, O-C-H-L-O-S, Omicron, Chi, Lambda, Omicron, Sigma. This Chi here is where is the, is the C-H, like begins Christos, begins Christ and so forth, and a lot of times it's just abbreviated with a big X, okay? A big Chi, and that was the nature of it when manuscripts were being copied by hand. The, the big Chi by itself stood for Christos. And uh, Oklos, O-C-H-L-O-S, but the plural is Hoi Okloi, nominative plural that you have here, Hoi Okloi. Our Greek students will recognize that form. And so we have not just a single crowd here, but multiple crowds. Multiple crowds. So who is it? Is it the disciples that need the content of these these chapters? Is it the crowds that need the content of these chapters? Who needs the content of these chapters? Well, primarily it's the disciples. But in allowing these others to eavesdrop, as it were... Seeds can be planted that perhaps later follow-up can work with. You know, it's, it's remarkable. I found a lot of ways I didn't even realize what was taking place. I'm in a conversation with somebody and I think I'm bearing fruit. And I'm praying about it and I'm talking to them and I'm, we're discussing scriptures and whatever. And then I walk away from that conversation and then I pray about it later on. And I wonder, is that conversation going to bear any fruit? Is it there going to be any response? Is anything going to get done? And then nothing happens, and then you get all disappointed, and you figure you're a failure, and nothing else is working. But what happened was, the real work wasn't taking place with the person you thought it was taking place in. There was somebody else that was eavesdropping, that happened over here, that was in the area, that came to hear about it later. Or maybe they didn't hear it live, but that person you were ministering to, they go and they relate it to somebody else. And they say, can you believe what that nitwit was telling me? He was saying, blah, 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 blah. And then that other person, that strikes a, a light there and they go, who was telling you that? I want to go find out where that person is, what's going on there. Okay, So sometimes it's the, uh, it's the wider audience that uh, can have some amazing things happen. And, and so some of that's probably in, in view here. Now, structure. The first element of this message is the Beatitudes. Point three. The Lord began his sermon with the Beatitudes. He begins with a message of happiness. He begins with a message of happiness. The Lord began his sermon with the Beatitudes, verses 3 through 12. 
There are crowds that are gathered. He's up on the mountain. They follow him up that mountain. He sits down. His disciples are around him. He opens his mouth and he began to teach. And the first word out of his mouth is happy. Makarios. Rendered blessed. We've been stuck with blessed ever since King James. All right. Which is unfortunate. Because the impact of Makarios is one of happiness. The mental attitude of inner happiness as different pastors have classified it. When you classify your edification complex of the soul, as it were, and the layer right below the mastery of the circumstances and details of life is what? You've got inner happiness. The stability of soul that can rejoice always, even when circumstances around you are falling apart. You can have an inner happiness. There's a joy in my heart that the world never gave. A joy it cannot take away. We have hymns that reflect the truth of inner happiness. I guess it's a peace, not joy in it. There's a peace in my yeah, there's a peace in my heart that the world never gave. A peace it cannot take away. Similar concept though, the stability we can have in our thinking and the and the um the, the anchor we can have for our emotions. So that we don't get all thrown into emotional revolt. We don't get all thrown into a tizzy because something's going on. We can have a happiness. Alright? So the term is happiness. And I had thought I would... Uh, Makarios is your vocabulary. Number 3107. Often rendered blessed because it's the... And, and, and I really think that modern translators do this because the... The, the poetry of the Beatitudes for centuries has been given in the, in the, uh, in the language of the King James. And I, I think there's similar aspects in, in uh, the Psalm 23 and other passages that have, that have become so ingrained through the centuries where the King James was the only English available that I, I think that the translators just submitted, you know, just kind of went with, with uh, blessed, because the idea of putting out a translation, happy are the uh, poor in spirit, would uh, not sit well with, with folks. I don't, I don't know why. All right? Because there's, there's certainly no shortage of vocabulary to describe blessed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. The doctrine of blessings is, is very easy to develop. The aspect of eulageo, to speak well of, to verbally pronounce goodness upon. The, uh, the aspect of a blessed one, a eulagetos, um, from receiving the, the favorable messages of the Lord. There's, there's many things we can do with blessed, and we don't have to go here to get them. In fact, if we confuse eulagetos with makarios, I think we, we blur some issues. Now, there are blessings, of course, for being poor in spirit. There are blessings, of course, associated with all of this. But this passage isn't dealing with the blessings. It's dealing with the happiness. It's dealing with the mental attitude stability. And hopefully we can stress that here as well. All right. I, if I had more time, I'd throw it up here and give you a kind of a... I had Lebronics up and running thinking that we could do something like that. Maybe next week we'll, we'll do some more work on it.
between them. Um, but we only have 12 minutes left. Uh, there's probably more we want to get into here at this time. And the ones which follow, comfort and inheriting the earth and satisfaction. All of these elements are looking forward to the kingdom. When those who have previously been mistreated will then find uh, recompense. They will then find that the remedy is being supplied. The Beatitudes are centered on the kingdom of heaven. Now, they are descriptive of the comfort and mercy the believers will receive after the tribulation when the earth is inherited at the beginning of the millennium. When the land grants are bestowed, not only the 12 tribe land grants, but the Gentiles receive their land grants because all the ends of the earth have been marked. Even the Gentile ends of the earth have been marked. It's remarkable when you study out Genesis chapter 10, you recognize that the Gentile divisions of humanity uh, represented by Ham, Shem, and Japheth, the, uh, the non-Jewish branches of Shem, and the, of course, Japheth and Ham are also Gentile branches. When you organize all of the Gentile branches of humanity, they are classified into 70, 70 nations. And when Israel was then classified, yes, they had 12 tribes, but those 12 tribes, some of them were larger, some of them were smaller. They were then further divided into 70 elders according to the number of the nations. Israel will, of course, have a ruling function over the Gentile nations in the Millennial Kingdom. So they are descriptive of the comfort and mercy the believers will receive after the tribulation when the earth is inherited at the beginning of the Millennium. Now, at the point where this is given, the Jewish people view themselves as being downtrodden. They view themselves as being abused and mistreated and harmed and, and suffering. They don't have a, a clue. Because the idea of Jacob's trouble, the coming tribulation, the coming hell on earth, yes, it's prophesied. Yes, it's given. The day of the Lord, the day of his wrath, and all of the apocalyptic literature that they have from Isaiah and, and uh, Zechariah predominantly, but there's many others, Joel. The day of the Lord, all the judgment and wrath and horrible things are going to come. They have no shortages of messages to describe how ugly things are going to get. But you can imagine that when the herald arrives and says, Behold your king, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What a sigh of relief some of them must be feeling. I think, oh, here we are in the kingdom. And things have been bad, uh, but they could have been a lot worse, right? We could have seen the sun darken and the moon like blood. We could have seen all these other things, all these apocalyptic messages of judgment and wrath and horrible things. And, oh, it wasn't all that bad now, was it? <laughs> they can start to breathe a little sigh of relief that maybe those prophets were kind of, you know, overblown. No. Unfortunately, or fortunately, however you want to look at it, those passages are still upcoming. The time of Jacob's trouble, hell on earth, I call it. I call it that because 
the gates are thrown open when the angel of the abyss comes down and throws open the, uh, the gates and all the demons launch forth to flood the earth. That's why I call it hell on earth. That's what it is. The tribulation is hell on earth. And if you don't want family members to face that, I suggest you evangelize prior to the rapture. So there is a lot coming up. And they, the immediate audience can view to a point, they can view you know, comfort for the afflicted and think that they've been downtrodden. They have been, but it's certainly nothing compared to what is coming. Right? And so, and, and we can do something similar. We can draw an application, you know, when we're persecuted. We can draw comfort. But we can realize that at best, that's a secondary application. Because we are not going to face anything remotely approaching the tribulation. We have tribulation, but we're not going to face the tribulation. Because that is unlike anything that has ever come upon the earth before. There is a shift under point B. The shift from they to you highlights the circumstances that the disciples slash apostles would experience prior to the kingdom of heaven appearing on earth. So subpoint B, notice the shift from they to you. That's a marker in the text. We allow the text to interpret itself. We identify where the text presents its interpretive markers. It's the only way to be fair to the text. So in verse 3, we're talking in the third person, they. And who is the they in verse 3? Well, it's the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples, of course, the, the crowds, those listening, will automatically want to put themselves there and say, yes, amen, we are the poor in spirit, wonderful us. The kingdom of heaven belongs to us. Blessed are those who mourn. Again, it's in the third person. For they shall be comforted. The crowds listening live when this message was first preached, could put themselves in that category and say, yes, we have been in mourning. Well, show me a generation since Adam that hasn't had mourning. From Cain and Abel. I mean, the first death, the first murder, and every death since then has been accompanied by human mourning. There have always been generations who have mourned. We mourn. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says we mourn. We just don't mourn as do the rest who have no hope. We mourn with the living hope. We all mourn. Every generation mourns. But there is coming a generation that will mourn in a way beyond anything ever been seen before because the, the judgment will be unlike anything ever seen before. Blessed are uh, those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We can have a comfort through the word of God. We, we mourn as do the rest who have, uh, not as the rest who have no hope. We mourn with hope. And the passage in 1 Thessalonians 4 says, Therefore comfort one another with these words. We can have a church-age comfort for a church-age mourning, and we have that through the New Testament, through the living and abiding Word of God. But this passage is dealing with a kingdom comfort that's going to come, that's going to be a kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. It's going to be a divine comfort here on earth. They shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. And uh, different groups have tried to claim that in different times and different reasons but the earth inheritance when is that going to be finally divided in the millennium 
Prior to that, there are, there are conquerors who will try to take it for themselves. William the Conqueror and other conquerors, right? Alexander the Great and all these other conquerors. And at best, they carve out a geography that has boundaries, has maximum limits. No one has yet to this point conquered the entire earth. And yet it's not going to be conquered, it's going to be inherited. Because the conqueror is Jesus Christ. And then the inheritance can then be bestowed. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. There have been believers of all generations that have had a true spiritual hunger and thirst. They have found satisfaction at every stage, including the church age, no difference. If there is a believer who is hungry for righteousness, he will be satisfied. The great shepherd will place him in, a, in an assembly where they can be fed. So there are general principles to be applied with each and every beatitude. But the ultimate fulfillment is where? In the, at the close of the tribulation, the inauguration of the millennial kingdom, when all Israel shall receive these blessings. Not only all Israel, but believing Gentiles as well, the merciful. See, the Gentiles who step up and who show mercy to the Jewish people, the Gentiles who step up and, and provide uh, safety and, and provision and blessing for the Jewish people, Sheep and goat judgment tells us in the sermon in the Mount Olivet discourse that they that will be the evidence of their regenerate nature that they will be uh, as Gentiles they will enter into the millennial kingdom as well merciful as they are blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God of course in the millennial kingdom God Himself will dwell among us Jesus Christ on the throne blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Unique uh, aspect in the sense that uh, primarily sonship of God was not a feature of the law. It was not a feature of Old Testament promises. And, and, but this passage here starts to address that. Blessed are those... Now, all of these are in the third person. They, 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 they. That people uh, that were there live listening to the message could see themselves in a limited way. All right? Those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But then it turns in verse 11 to blessed are you. Blessed are you. Alright? And when Jesus Christ turns from blessed are they to blessed are you, a whole lot of people ought to wake up to realize, oh, he wasn't talking about us, literally, in all these other verses. Wait a minute, now he is talking to us. So what's this message? Blessed are you. When people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you, against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. Notice reward in heaven. Everything else was highlighted to the comfort on earth, the provision on earth. Here the reward is in heaven. In the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So there is a transition and that concludes the Beatitudes. The, the first several Beatitudes are focused on they, 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 they. But then in verse 11, it switches to blessed are you. And it's remarkable when that transition comes that then the promise comes to a heavenly reward rather than an earthly reward. 
highlighting the circumstances that the disciples slash apostles would experience prior to the kingdom of heaven appearing on earth. All right. Well, we're out of time. The um, similitudes follow the Beatitudes in verses 13 and 14. But we uh, will have to reserve that. And uh, like I say, I think at the first part of next week, I'll go ahead and get these things ready to show you the contrast between blessed and happy and show you some of the uh, details of the the verses there in, in terms of uh, the details of the Beatitudes. But we'll we'll save that for next week. Any questions before we close in prayer and dismiss? Think kingdom. Mm-hmm. No. No, everything in the grammar there. Yes. Yeah, the present ongoing poor in spirit ones. Yeah. I'll highlight that next week as well. I'll, I'll just put the text up there and we'll, we'll read through it together. I look forward to doing that. That'd be a good exercise for our Sunday afternoon Greek class and uh, profitable for everyone, edifying for everybody here. All right. And like I say, that's it's true for every generation. Church age, we can draw an application here because we have believers today who mourn. You know, how do you shepherd a flock when you've got, I mean, you've got believers in your flock that are going to mourn. You've got family members who are mourning. What do you do for them? Well, you want to give them comfort. How do you do that? Say, well, you can't usher them into the kingdom can't bring Christ down from heaven. So what do we do short of that? All right. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. We pray that we might have an understanding of your grace eternal plan. I thank you you've recently taken us through the Alpha to Omega perspective. I pray that we might keep that in mind, that we are not um, the uh, subjects of this kingdom, but rather the queen on the throne with our Lord. And I thank you that we are one body in Christ. I pray that we might keep our perspective as the bride intact, keep our perspective as the church, the body and bride of the Lamb. Thanking you for this teaching, rejoicing that today may be the day in which the Lord himself descends with a shout. We ask even so come, Lord Jesus, and it's in his most precious and holy name that we pray. Amen.